about a guy that Wycliffe Bible translators in Brazil used in their recording of the Jesus film in Brazil. And the translation was in a, in a tribal language. And uh, the only person who was really qualified to record the part of Zacchaeus was a, a rascal, a scoundrel of a man. But he was the only one who could really do it and pull it off well. And the article says, This man was always looking for ways to profit at the expense of others. When this man recorded the part of the story where Zacchaeus repented for his sins, he could not bring himself to say the words, I stole. But instead, he said, he stole. When this was pointed out, he denied it, that he had made a mistake, and he refused to record his part again. I mean, isn't that really the difficulty? Um, we have a really hard time admitting our sin without pointing fingers, without excuses. Well, I did this, I acted this way, but... And then you fill in the blank, and there's always that excuse. But here's the glory of that story. This man finally agreed to record the part right, uh, correctly. And when the recording was finished... Uh, they showed this Jesus film out in this field. And just as a side, not to, to interrupt this story, but uh, I've seen this uh, in Ghana where they record uh, the Jesus film in a tribal language, in this case in Ghana, in the tree language. And what was remarkable when I was there was that in the providence of God, the power had gone out in the entire town. And so... Uh, as a result of a generator, we were able to play this Jesus film in this field. And so the entire town came out to, uh, to watch this Jesus film, just like in this story. And in this particular story, as the, the film is coming to a close and Jesus is on the cross suffering for the sins, for everyone who would repent of their sins and believe on him, um, and people are crying out, uh, in response to what they see on the, on the film, here was this man in the middle of the crowd, the man who had recorded the part of Zacchaeus and had a hard time saying the words, I stole. Here was the man with, with tears streaming down his face as he beheld the suffering Christ. This man had been converted. The man was converted as he beheld our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Now think about this. This man in his pre-converted state, before he was willing to repent of his sins and to confess, to profess the Lord Jesus Christ, this man represents every unconverted person in the history of the world. People in their pride who, who cannot confess and own up to their sin. And hence, subsequently, they have no idea, no palatable need for the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this man in his converted state, after he confessed his sin, after he was broken over his sin, after he saw his need for Jesus, he represents every person who has ever been converted. 
Indeed, this man's story is a study of sharp contrast, isn't it? Contrast between the pre-converted man and the post-converted man. And contrast are always a very helpful way to instruct. It's a very helpful way. And in our text today, we're going to observe a pair of very sharp contrast. These contrasts are given by the Spirit through the pen of Luke for Theophilus' instruction. And by extension, Fisherville's instruction. Instruction to the believer to confirm you in the faith. To confirm and to make certain the things you've been taught, as Luke wrote to Theophilus. That indeed, Jesus is the king. He is our prophet. He is our priest. He is the mediator. He is worthy to give your life away to. Okay? And for the unbeliever, there's also instruction. Luke wants you to see, uh, as you behold this passage, of your need for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we saw last time that Jesus is on the way, the road to suffering, the Via Della Rosa. And what's interesting is the final words that he speaks before he's hung up on the cross is about coming judgment. Isn't that interesting? We do not like that idea in our culture that God is a judging God. But judgment is good when you're holy and righteous. Okay? And so Jesus is speaking these words of judgment. And now he's come to the appointed place where they're going to hang him. And the first thing we're going to see is this contrast between the crucified Jesus and the ones who crucified Jesus. It's a very sharp contrast here. And if you want to make it more personable, we could say it this way. There is a contrast here between the perfect, holy Son of God and every unconverted person who has ever lived. Look with me in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Luke only gives us the Greek term. Uh, The Greek term for skull is cranium, where we get the word cranium. Okay, Um, the Aramaic term is Golgotha. Golgotha means the place of the skull. The Latin term is the word Calvary. Calvary means skull. Golgotha means skull. That's where they have brought Jesus to be crucified, the place of the skull. Uh, It was likely that the place kind of resembled the shape of a skull. And most scholars today believe it is at the site where uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre stands today. But it's far from certain. But more importantly, uh, this immediately calls uh, attention back to chapter 22, verse 37. The night before he was crucified, he says, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Um, It's very interesting. 
that Jesus is quoting that there the night before the cross, and now it's being played out. Of course, we know that that is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 12. Uh, it's a passage we've looked at before. But in Isaiah 53, 12, it says, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Now, why is that important? Well, this is the fourth of four servant songs. Isaiah 40 to 66, okay, is focusing on two central themes, a new exodus and a new heaven and a new earth. Those are the same things, by the way. Um, The new exodus is not exodus out of Egypt or any other kind of political enslavement, though that certainly will be the case in the consummation of things. Um, it's an exodus from the penalty, the power, and the future presence of sin. That is the emphasis of Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 66. Isaiah as well speaks in that section about a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a holy Jerusalem that is going to be the hope of the world, okay? It's when God's holy of holy presence is going to go universal. It's going to go Uh, and be universal in scope, like the Garden of Eden, but on steroids, okay? And this is going to be achieved through a suffering servant, all right? The one who will come, who will serve as a substitute for sinners. And this is how this fourth of four servant songs closes about this one who will be numbered among the transgressors. In other words, this suffering servant is going to accomplish the new exodus, the new heaven, and the new earth through a cross. A cross through crucifixion. And though I have no problem with people wearing crosses, let me get that out of the way. I do. One of my concerns is that the presence of this beautiful cross-shaped jewelry that we wear has tamed it. I'm afraid that... Uh, it has the potential of desensitizing us to the heinousness, the horror of the cross. But if we had witnessed a crucifixion, we would have nightmares for the rest of our life. That's how horrible a crucifixion was. You would never be able to get that out of your mind, that image again. In fact, uh, crucifixion was the central way people were killed or that is uh, put to death, capital punishment, from about 6th century B.C., starting with the Persians, all the way to 337 A.D. when Constantine uh, outlawed it. It was too, uh, too horrible, and Constantine outlawed it. But C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, I think describes it as vividly as you can describe it. He writes, he, speaking of Jesus, creates the universe already foreseeing. Or should we say seeing? There are no tenses in God. The buzzing cloud of flies about the cross. The flayed back pressed against the uneven stake. The nails driven through the medial nerves. The repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops. The repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake. 
hitched up. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. But having said this, Luke doesn't dwell on the suffering. None of the Gospels do. He gets straight to the point. He just matter-of-factly says it in three words. And he, they crucified him. Likely because, as we saw last week, Jesus does not want us to show pity for him. That's not the point of the cross. The point of the cross is not that we feel sorry for Jesus. The point of the cross is that we see it and we recognize that we deserve judgment. And we also recognize that judgment is coming. The cross is, in a sense, a signpost of a judgment to come at the end of the age. But now this judgment is falling on one man. That's the point of the cross. And this, too, is a fulfillment of a remarkable prophecy. Uh, As Seth led us this morning in Psalm 22. Now, keep in mind uh, what the psalmist is experiencing here. Um is, as he said, greater than he even knows. He writes greater than he knows. He is experiencing something real. Uh, the, the son of uh, God, the, the king, the Davidic king, who represents God as his vice king, his vice regent, and it's through this king that salvation is going to come to all the nations. We know that from Second Samuel 7, which is a partial fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. This king is experiencing remarkable suffering at the hands of wicked and sinful people. And to attack the God's anointed is to attack Yahweh himself. And yet in the midst of the suffering, he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here in Psalm 22 we see some remarkable words. He writes this, in fact, centuries before crucifixion had ever been invented. Okay? The crucifixion was only invented around 6th century B.C. David is writing hundreds of years prior to that. And he says in Psalm 22, 16, Dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands And my feet. Of course, he's writing there metaphorically. But again, isn't the Holy Spirit good? The Holy Spirit superintends this man's pen. And he describes this persecution in a way that foreshadows, that points to a coming crucifixion. A crucifixion uh, event that was not even invented at the time. And even in the midst of this horrendous suffering, Jesus never fails to surprise. Look with me in verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, this is the first of seven famous statements. Okay? You could do an entire sermon series on those seven statements of Jesus from the cross. We're going to see two of them in this passage. Um, you have uh, him saying, I thirst. You have his final statement into your hands. I commit my spirit. We will look at that next week. You have this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not in Luke's passage, but it is in Matthew. But this is the first of the seven statements. 
And the first statement is, Father, forgive them. And as J.C. Ryle so aptly says, as soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. And again, we're reminded of fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Now keep in mind, this is the third fulfillment picked up in this one passage. In Isaiah 53, 12, we just looked at, he says, He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, makes intercession for the transgressors. Here the suffering servant, bearing the sins of many, making intercession for the transgressors. Now there's a lot of ink spilled concerning the extent of his intercession. We know that the night before in John 17, he says, I don't pray for the world. I pray for those you've given me out of the world. And in this particular passage, we also know from John um, that the father always answers the prayer of the son. And so if he's praying for every single person here, every single person here is going to be forgiven. We certainly know that not everyone's going to be forgiven. Uh, There will be people who spend eternity in a place that the Bible calls hell. Conscious torment. That doesn't fit your sensibilities. It's because your sensibilities are fallen. And they need to come into conformity with the word of God. Okay? But here, he is praying that God would forgive them. Now, who is he speaking to about? Now, I believe he's speaking about the Gentiles and the Jews broadly. Perhaps he's speaking here about the priest. Uh, Perhaps he's speaking about the soldiers. Maybe he's praying for Israel as a whole because we know that judgment would not come for some 40 years. And maybe as a result of the prayer, God delays judgment. It's hard to be certain. Maybe he's praying about the coming Pentecost when thousands will be saved when God pours out his spirit. Maybe he's just praying for those who we're going to see converted at the scene of. Of the crime. We certainly are going to see that today. We're going to see another conversion next week. It's hard to be sure um, as to the depths and the breadth of this prayer. But we do know this this prayer signals that Jesus on the cross is there to secure the forgiveness of sins. It's very clear that's why he's there. And in praying for those who were doing the unthinkable in crucifying the Son of God, does that not give us hope? Do you know how often in my ministry I have heard someone say, you just don't know what I've done in my past. There's just no way God could forgive me for what I've done. And here on the cross, Jesus is praying for those who are doing the most heinous act in the history of the world. As heinous as World War II was and Auschwitz and the Holocaust, and it was heinous. It pales in comparison to crucifying the Son of God. As heinous as murder, as heinous as Any sin you can envision in your mind is, it pales in comparison to crucifying the Son of God. 
And here Jesus is praying for their forgiveness. And this gives uh, any sinner hope. Who here is beyond the mercy of our God? No one. There's no one here that cannot be forgiven if you repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. When the enemies of Jesus are crying, crucify him, crucify him, Jesus is crying, forgive them. And a Savior like that is willing to forgive you of your past. He's willing to forgive you of your present. That's the kind of Savior Jesus is, if you repent. And this very well may be the reason Jesus left the prayer so open-ended, okay? So undefined. It's an invitation to anyone who comes to Him in repentance and faith. I mean, This is a glorious passage. I mean, it, it should give you all the hope in the world. And I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said here. He says, here now into that pronoun them... Of course, Jesus said, forgive them. He says, into that pronoun them, I feel that I can crawl. Can you get in there? Oh, by a humble faith, appropriate the cross of Christ by trusting in it. And get into that big little word, them. Maybe there's some here today that have never trusted You've never humbled yourself. You've never seen your need for a Savior. And Jesus will forgive you today if you'll humble yourself and repent of your sins and trust in His finished work at the cross for your salvation. But keep in mind, this prayer cannot, it cannot be divided from His cross. Okay? God does not forgive apart from the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, His... Prayer is intentionally connected. It's intentionally offered from the cross. Okay? In other words, if the Father requires, as a righteous God, if He requires a reason to forgive sinners, He only needed to see where Jesus was offering His prayer to have that righteous and holy reason. The cross of our Lord Jesus. That was the place. Let me give you a fancy term. We use it here. It's the place where God was propitiated. What does that word mean? It means His holy wrath. His loving wrath on sin was satisfied. Okay? At the cross. For everyone who would believe. That's where it was propitiated. Jesus Christ His death was the propitiation. Jesus himself, his person, was the propitiator. The Father is the propitiated. And when you hear someone pray like that, when you're spiting them, wouldn't that melt you? I would hope it would. Have you ever just mistreated someone? And instead of responding in a carnal way, they respond in grace and mercy? Doesn't that melt you? It should. But it did not melt these people. They are face to face with compassion and mercy incarnate. But instead of of being melted, they continued to harden themselves. Look with me in 34b. Father, forgive them, 
It says, they cast lots to divide his garments. Again, casting lots to divide his garments. Fulfillment of Psalm 22, 18. This is the fourth Old Testament passage that's fulfilled in this particular section. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. They're making, they're making profit off of him. They're making light of Jesus. There's a lot of people like that in this culture. They don't take him seriously. Um, he's the king, but they don't treat him like a king. But as a side, do you know that the Old Testament is about Jesus? That's what the Old Testament was, is about. It's preparing us for the king, the Messiah. Uh, The Old Testament prepares us for the Messiah by showing us our need for the Messiah. The Old Testament prepares us for the Messiah by showing us what kind of Messiah he will be, what kind of work he will do, what kind of person he will be. The Old Testament is about the coming king. As Philip said to Nathaniel in John 1 verse 45, we have found him, which means they've been looking for him. We have found him of whom Moses in the law wrote. And the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth. We found him. Well, note with me in verse 35. They continue their antagonism. The people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. You know, this interesting emphasis on the Christ of God is is very fascinating. Because it's not emphasized in the middle of Luke. It's only emphasized at the beginning of Luke in the birth narrative. And at the end of Luke in the passion narrative. But it's not emphasized in the body of of Luke. Now, why is that the case? It's simple. Jesus' Messiahship, the fact that He is the Christ, the true King, can only be understood in light of the cross. Okay? Uh, he would have known, and Jesus clearly knew this, that the Jews would have latched um, onto the political dimension. Of Jesus being from the line of David. And they would have focused on the political aspects of that. That would have been their emphasis if he had stressed throughout his ministry that he is the son of David, that he is the Christ. In fact, uh, we even see the disciples having a hard time with this idea that the Christ, the son of David, the true king would have to suffer on a cross. They just had a hard time with it. And and we certainly see that with these people as well. Their idea of a king didn't fit a cross. And as a result, there's four different groups. They're going to taunt and mock Jesus uh, in this passage. In the first we see here the, the, the people and the rulers. Again, this is the fifth time we see a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in this passage. Psalm 22, listen again. 
Uh, Psalm 22, verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what they were saying to Jesus. For he delights in him. And what's remarkable in our passage is their admission. Notice what they say. He saved others. I mean, that's a pretty remarkable admission. They're recognizing this man has saved others. There's at least three that were raised from the dead. Right? Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, the widow at Nain, her son. At least three were raised from the dead. They, they knew about Jesus rebuking fevers, rebuking demons, rebuking the wind and the waves to save the disciples. They would have known about this man who gave sight to the blind and, and hearing to the deaf and enabled the mute to speak. They would have known about this man who, who healed the crippled and the lame. Okay? They would have known these things. They said he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Of course, we know something that they clearly didn't know. The only way to ultimately save others was by refusing to save himself. That's the irony. Notice with me in verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him. Come up, coming up and offering him sour wine. And saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Again, Psalm 30 or verse 36 is an, is an allusion to Psalm 69 verse 21 uh, for thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. It's the sixth fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. What's the Old Testament about? It's about Jesus. And there's great irony here with the sign that they put over, over Jesus' head here. When a criminal was executed, it was the, the custom for the governor uh, to give public notice of his crime. Here's the problem. Jesus hadn't committed a crime. That's the issue. He had not committed a crime. Pilate had made that clear, right? Several times. Herod had made this clear as well. And so he simply decided or decided simply to, to identify Jesus as the king of the Jews. Which they didn't like, by the way. You can read that in John 19. And by declaring this, Pilate is doing something that's actually greater than he knows. He is crucifying Jesus for being who he really is. And so in a very providential way, God was serving notice that Jesus crucified is the saving king. He can only save through the cross. Now think about this. Here's a prophet who had predicted Jerusalem's downfall. We saw that last week. Here is a priest who's making intercession for sinners. And now, here we have a crucified king. 
If Jesus is to save us, we need him to come as prophet, priest, and king. Why do we need a prophet? Because we are ignorant. Why do we need a priest? Because we're guilty. Why do we need a king? Because we are weak and helpless. We are impotent. And here the king is serving as a substitute for sinners. And Mark reveals, interesting, and this is a very uh, interesting statement. Mark reveals in Mark 15 that the two men that are crucified, one on each side of him at this point, were insulting him. Mark 15, verse 32. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. In other words, both men that are crucified with Jesus are reviling him, insulting him. But here, we come to a place in a passage where it's very clear that after a time, one of those thieves that had been reviling him stops reviling him. He stops mocking him. Something happens, something changes. And that brings us to the second contrast. We've seen the contrast between uh, the crucified Jesus and those who are crucifying him. We come really to the heart of the passage. A contrast between a converted criminal and the one who scorned Jesus. Or you could say, a contrast between every converted Believer in every unconverted believer. Look with me in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. Mark tells us both of them have been railing at him, right? They both have been scorning him, but now it's only one. Saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. I mean, the spiritual darkness of an unregenerate person, it's clearly seen here. I mean, this is what unregenerate... What do I mean by unregenerate? Well, the word regeneration is the same idea as being born again. You cannot enter the kingdom. You will not see the kingdom, Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless you're born again, unless you're born from above. That's what it means to be regenerate. Titus tells us he saved us not because of any uh, righteous things we had done. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, regeneration, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It makes you new. You have new eyes, okay? But this man's spiritual darkness is clearly seen. He wants a deity who will give him practical help in emergencies. He wants a deity who will bail him out... When he finds himself in a pickle. But he does not want a God and Lord who stands over him and calls him to repentance. And that's how unregenerate people think. They want that kind of God. They don't want a Lord. They don't want a king. They want a salvation without repentance. And that was this man. Again, the irony. Why don't you save yourself and, and save us if you're truly the king? Is what the man is saying. What he doesn't realize is. If this man is to be saved. It's because Jesus refuses to save himself. 
But in contrast to this unrepentant man, look at the second man, verse 40. But the other rebuked him. Something has changed. This man went from scorning Jesus to rebuking the other criminal. Saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. Notice, we indeed justly. We are receiving the due reward of our deeds. What is that? That's confession. That's the confession of sin. That's recognizing we deserve judgment. That's what we deserve. There's no excuses. But this man has done nothing wrong. He is confessing Jesus as the righteous one. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That is a plea for mercy. Obviously, this man is converted right there on the spot. Maybe he'd heard about Jesus' warnings of judgment. We saw that last week. Maybe he had heard, and certainly he did hear, Jesus praying uh, for forgiveness. And there's a contrast when you behold the glory of the Son of God and you understand and know who you are. You would never pray for the forgiveness of, of those who are crucifying you. So he, he beheld this contrast between the Son of God and his own sinful state. He beheld his glory and he was converted. And note what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, remember my works. He had no works. Actually, he did. For his entire life, he had performed the works of his father, the devil, as Jesus tells the Jews in John chapter 8. He had nothing to commend himself to God. Nothing. And you're no different. I go to church. I read my Bible. Before a holy God, your works are filthy rags. All he can say is, Jesus, remember me. He has nothing to plead except his sin and his need for Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's a confession of faith. That is a cry of mercy from someone who has been broken over his sin. And until you're broken over your sin, until you recognize you deserve the judgment of God, you will never... Flee to Jesus. And that may be why today the subject of Jesus, the subject, the word of God, in fact, bores you. You don't really understand how dire your situation is. But when you recognize who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Out of that will come doxological desperation. And that's where this man is. This man's confessing Jesus. And in response, Jesus utters the sacket of seven statements from the cross as we close this out. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be in me in paradise. The word paradise is a Persian loan word. It comes from the Persian language. But more importantly... It was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which the readers of that day would read. It was used 11 times in Genesis 2 and 3 to refer to the Garden of Eden. Okay? 
Paradise, in a sense, is what the Garden of Eden uh, typified, it pointed to. It was a, the Garden of Eden was the original sanctuary of God. It was the original holy of holies. Okay? And, and that's another sermon for another day. But Adam and Eve were pl- place, uh, placed into this garden as priests to tend the tabernacle of God. You could have rightly described the Garden of Eden as Emmanuel. God with us. Okay? But when they sinned, they were cast Out of the Holy of Holies. They were cast out of the Garden of God. They were cast out of paradise. Because only those who are as holy as God can abide there. And God erected these cherubim, Genesis 3.24, to guard the gate. And now, the only way to come back into that garden, the only way to enter into that paradise is through a mediator. A mediator between God and man. Jesus is declaring, I am that mediator. Today you will be with me in paradise. In the cross, in the resurrection, Jesus has inaugurated the new heaven and the new earth to come. Paradise has erupted into this broken, fallen age through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the mediator. And this is a remarkable assurance for all of us That immediately upon death, if you are in Christ, if you have come to Christ as your mediator, as your sin bearer, as your scapegoat, you will immediately go into the presence of God in paradise. There's no soul sleep that some have taught. You immediately experience paradise. It's a remarkable encouragement for those who are facing death but Jesus must be your sin bearer he must be your scapegoat or you will not go there and it's also remarkable this is the only deathbed conversion in the entire scriptures it's the only one isn't that interesting and here's why there's only one to give you hope God saves people on their deathbed But there's only one, lest you be presumptuous. Lest you think, I'll put it off till the end. There's only one. One man who was converted on his deathbed. But don't you see it? Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them, is being answered before our very eyes. In this thief, this criminal, this vile criminal who's had his sins forgiven. In fact, in the coming months, many priests would be converted as well. Acts chapter 6 tells us that. I think it's verse 7. And for 2,000 years, it's been the case. Generationally and geographically, sinners... Continually come to Christ, having their sins forgiven through Him, the mediator. And and oftentimes it's people that you would least expect. That's why, by the way, you should always share the gospel with your neighbor, your your family members. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and God saves people we least expect. Okay? It's always been the case. 
In fact, uh, Psalm 22, that passage we've looked at, you know how it closes? Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. We're seeing it here with this Gentile criminal dying on the cross. And we're going to see it in Acts as the gospel goes from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. We see it here. Some of you, your testimonies, it makes no sense on paper how you could be a a believer. In the homes you were raised in, uh, godless, wicked parents, godless, wicked grandparents, and here you sit today. Why? Because Jesus' prayer is being answered before our very eyes. Donald Gray Barnhouse, remarkable preacher in Philadelphia in the mid-20th century, James Montgomery Boyce's predecessor. One day he was in his study, and his secretary said, there's a man here who wants to see you. And so uh, Barnhouse said, bring him in. And this man uh, happened to be the captain of a ship, okay, And he told Barnhouse, he said, for 23 times a year, I sail the Atlantic and I hear your broadcast out of Boston. And as I came this week, I thought to myself, I've got 24 hours in New York. I'm going down to Philadelphia and see Dr. Barnhouse. So I took a train hoping perhaps I would be able to meet you. Now think about it. Uh, Who would have ever thought a, a boat captain is listening to preaching? As he's selling the Atlantic. You just never know what the gospel does. Okay? And what the gospel is doing. One thing we do know. Jeremiah 1 says he stands over his word to perform it. Well, Barnhouse got straight to the point with the man. And he asked the man. He said, are you born again? And the man said, that's why I came to see you. And Barnhouse opened up Luke chapter 23. And he pointed to this passage and he says, there are three crosses here. And then he went to his chalkboard and he, he drew on his chalkboard three crosses. On the first cross, underneath the cross, he wrote the word in. And on top of the cross, he wrote the word on. On the third cross, he wrote underneath the word in. But on top of the cross, he wrote the word, not on. And on the middle cross, he wrote underneath it, not in. But on top of the cross, he wrote the word, on. He said, do you understand what I'm saying here? On the first cross hung a man who had sin in him. But because he refused to humble himself and confess the Christ, he died with sin on him. That is, he was punished for his sin. And on the third cross hung a man who had sin in him. But because he looked to the one in the middle... He died without sin on him. Why? Because the man who hung between them, Jesus Christ, who had no sin in him, died 
with this man's sin on him. And then he looked at that man and he asked him the question, which one are you? And that is the question. It's the most important question you could ever ask. It's the most important question that's ever been asked in the history of the world. All of us are like those thieves. We have sin in us. We have sin in us. But some of you may still have sin on you. Because you've refused to receive the penalty that Jesus paid. Okay? Is your sin on you? Or is it on Jesus? That's the question this text presents. It is the most important question. The story of these two thieves are essentially the story of all of humanity. The story of the man who recorded Zacchaeus. And it's the story of us. Let's pray. Father, we know from your word that wherever your holiness has not swallowed up sin in Jesus, it will confront sin outside of Jesus. To swallow up sin in Jesus is the gospel. But it's no gospel for those who refuse His substitution. Father, if there's any here today that have never trusted in Jesus, they have sin in them. They also have sin on them. I pray today they would come to Him.